Hi, this is Verity Bly and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Laysian Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Kevin Rudd, former Australian Prime Minister, current student at Jesus College and a lifelong Sinologist. Mr Rudd, as a fellow Australian student here at Oxford, it's both a pleasure and an honour to interview you today. Thank you, Verity. So as this is the International Relations Podcast, um, I'd like to focus our discussion on China and its role in the changing international system. You've just launched a book, Not for the Faint-Hearted, in which you describe a lifetime of studying China, starting with Sinology Studies at the Australian National University in Canberra in 1976. Where did this fascination come from so early? Well, if you've grown up... Um on a uh, beef and um, dairy property in rural Queensland, um, anything looks like a good exit point. Mm -hmm. Now, I really enjoyed growing up in uh, the Queensland country. My mother, who was um, not formally educated, uh, she never really went to high school, nor did my father, but my mother was very much into self-education, and so she was forever reading newspapers, um, buying journals, and... um, buying books and um, making sure we read them. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those households which encouraged wider reading. Mm-hmm. And I think in the course of that, I was um, introduced into uh, Chinese history. And uh, I think just as a child, it quite fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this was um, going to be um, something I would like to uh, pursue further. And then on top of that, when I was at high school, Gough Whitlam and the then Labour government uh, recognised the People's Republic of China. So then I became visually fascinated with the film footage coming out of Peking in those days on Gough's meeting with Mao and Zhou Enlai and the team. So by the time I finished high school, I said, I really need to wrap my head around this place because I think it's going to be important. Mm. And in the book, you describe seeing China as sort of a unified civilizational system rather than so it was more than just a nation state. Um, when you moved to Peking as a diplomat with a young family in 1983, was this still the case, or was your experience? Uh, how did your experience change your academic understanding of China? Well, China in those days was um, a deeply authoritarian state, um, where the degree of freedom in people's individual lives was highly limited. Um, and China is still an authoritarian state today. But uh, you can now choose where you go to school, um, if you can afford it. You can choose where you work. You can now choose um, more easily who you're going to marry. Uh, You can now choose more easily when you're going to marry. You can now choose more easily if you're going to marry. So in the range of personal choices and private sector opportunities... Uh, it's just a, a different world to the one that I saw back then when people wore either blue or green and not much else. I think the second thing, though, is that sitting alongside that particular experience of China was you only had to walk you know, 50 yards to discover some other piece of living antiquity. Mm-hmm. Like even in those days, there were still, um, uh, there were still horse-drawn carts there was even a camel train coming in from the desert. Wow. Uh, like you were at the absolute yeah. end of, mm-hmm. of an earlier age. And so antiquity and modernity live side by side. And to some extent, that's still the essential nature of Chinese politics and society today. Because you described um, 
Peking is a city on the frontier, which I think is the term that encapsulates that sort of that change and um, reckoning. It's also on the physical frontier. If you visit Peking or Beijing as it is now, and um, it sits at the very northern end of the North China Plain, bordered by this extraordinary mountain range, which heads out to the Bohai Gulf in one direction and west um, for thousands of miles, and that's where, of course, the Great Wall is built. So Peking existed in the old days as this place which was a pass between the mountains um, and became the northern capital, which is what Beijing means. Be means north and Jing means capital. Um, because uh, it was put there originally by the Yuan dynasty, the Mongols, who invaded China, and they wanted the capital as close as possible to Mongolia. So, as I said, history, antiquity, continuity, and radical change coexist in this place. And while you were a diplomat there, one of your roles was figuring out who was on top of who within the Chinese Communist Party and figuring out how and why these elite power politics worked. Is that still the approach that we should be taking to studying China today? In part, it's uh, the Chinese equivalent of criminology, mm. or as we'd say, who, he, she and when, mm-hmm. um, yeah. all being Chinese family names. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so elite politics in most countries matters, but it matters particularly in an authoritarian state like China's, because who has power in an absolute system matters, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in terms of their ideation of the role they see for China in the world. Mm. At the same time, there are many other Chinas. There's the China of the modern economy, which is a whole bunch of people like Jack Ma, who are building these extraordinary internet-based firms, commanding the digital economy, commanding digital finance, commanding uh, digital logistics, both at home and abroad, Mm. and that creates a whole new phenomenon. And then you've got whatever's happening in Chinese society, which is in one part traditional, but at the other part being broken down by modernity as well. Uh, As young women, thank God, are increasingly not doing what they're told and pursuing their own lives. And so so China's in a state of flux, but still within the political framework of an authoritarian state. Um, And in the book, you describe two experiences that perhaps stick out in hindsight. Um, And I'd be interested to hear how you reflect on them today. One being the fact that you were responsible for Australia's relationship with North Korea at the time. Um, And the second one, that you met Xi Jinping um, in 1986 when you were a young um, embassy official. Um, And of course, you're now studying his ideology um, during your time here at Oxford. Well, I'd say to all uh, young students of international relations, uh, always keep a diary mm-hmm. and always reflect on where you've been because uh, the longer you're around, the more these uh, circles round on themselves and you'll find yourself meeting and re-meeting people throughout your life. I think the first one was just happenstance that as I was designated in the embassy at the time as responsible for our bilateral relationship with the North Koreans, because way back in 1976, uh, we had established, or 75, we established diplomatic relations. And within 12 months, the North Koreans had expelled the entire Australian embassy, frog-marched them down to uh, 
Pyongyang railway station and sent them off to uh, to Beijing, allegedly because they were spying for the Americans, which I think is an absolute nonsense. So we'd been between 76 and when I was there, 85, 86, sort of 10 years without any contact at all. But the designated point of contact became our embassy in... Um, uh, in Beijing mm-hmm. and their embassy in Beijing so uh, every week I would go and see Mr Kim mm-hmm. on the embassy or he would come to see me at my embassy and we had absolutely nothing to talk about because mm-hmm. there was nothing going on but I would offer him tea he would offer me tea and, and, uh, and every now and then something would arise some of the incidents of course are related in the book uh, but remember, this was within a, few, a year or so of the North Korean intelligence services uh, assassinating the entire South Korean cabinet yeah. in Rangoon in Burma on their way to Australia on a uh, state visit. Mm-hmm. And so the brutality of that regime was alive and well then and uh, remains alive and well today. As for Xi Jinping, um, I simply remember him as a uh, young vice mayor of Xiamen mm-hmm. and myself having been sent early to Xiamen to organise the visit for then Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so it would be wrong for me to say that I had in-depth conversations mm-hmm. with him. I did not. Um, but I do recall the man. Yeah. Um, and as I'm confident, he will not recall me <laughs> from those times. We got to know each other better later. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after this point, you left the Foreign Office to join the world of politics, um, and you found yourself in China with the Queensland Labour Party during Wayne Goss's campaign, um, and you were there during the 1989 Tiananmen protests. Hmm. Um, could you please describe your reaction at the time, what stayed with you from this experience? These were extraordinary times in China. I mean, I saw it through the lens of a... Sinologist who'd been studying by that stage Chinese politics for the better part of um, 10 to 15 years. And so I remember when we arrived in Beijing on the day that martial law was declared on the 20th of May 1989, and then with my humble Queensland uh, Labour Party delegation, then uh, ducking and weaving our way around the um, security guards. It helps to know the, your way around Beijing. Yeah. Um, and then emerging out in Tiananmen Square, and if you're familiar with the photographs, uh, mm-hmm. that huge portrait of yeah. Mao, which uh, sits outside um, the entrance to the Forbidden City, mm-hmm. emerging from there out onto the square and then just looking at this sea of humanity uh, in protest. Mm-hmm. And just I was just stunned. To the right-hand mm-hmm. side, I could see a great hall of people with these huge darts of bow, great uh, big character posters, um, uh, attacking various individual members of the then regime, in particular the military components of the regime. A member in particular of darts of bow attacking a guy called Yang Shang Kun, uh, who subsequently became the person who orchestrated the military crackdown uh, in Tiananmen. Then on the other side, if you look uh, out into Tiananmen Square to the left, there is what they call the which is the uh, Museum of uh, Revolutionary History, mm-hmm. now simply called the National History Museum. But across it, and across these massive array of Soviet-style uh, red flags, across the top of these hand-painted ragged flags with two characters on them, Minjur, mm-hmm. democracy. And then in front of me, there was these 
were these parade marshals who were organising rolling parades under signs of uh, representing various institutions of the Chinese party and state. I remember a, a, a group of kids marching under the banner of the Central Party School, the Foreign Ministry, various uh, units marching under the flags of, uh, of uh, various factories from in and around Beijing. And I think that's one of the things that deeply disturbed the regime is that you're beginning to bring together not just the intellectual class from Peking University, but the official class through the party school, but also the working class uh, through... Anyway, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, the crackdown occurred uh, a little uh, under two weeks after my first day in the square. But in the meantime, I'd spent a full week in the square wandering around yeah. just talking to kids like you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing that you were, you were there during that point in history. And I mean, part of that crackdown was Deng sending a message that China would not have a glasnost and perestroika like the Soviet Union had in the same year. Um, and instead, the regime's focus, particularly on the Xi Jinping, um, seems to be to become a great power. Um, and in fact, Xi Jinping mentioned the term great power 26 times in his most recent speech um, at the 19th Party Congress. Um, and you're researching his ideology at the moment. Is this an accurate reading of his ambitions? Well, part of the reasons for being here in Oxford is that um, I don't quite know the answer to that. <laughs> and so I'm scholarly enough in temperament to know what I know and what I don't know, which is part of the reason for spending time here. Your characterization of Dunn's response uh, in his meeting with uh, Gorbachev at that time in 89 is about right. Um, Dunn was not in the mood to tolerate uh, any core political liberalization. Uh, Dung was still a, Len a, Len a Leninist, yeah. uh, though he was not necessarily a socialist, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, Leninist in terms of political and party control, but not socialist in the sense of an entirely um, state-owned and certainly not yeah. state-run economy. Um, so if we uh, wind the clock forward then to um, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping is also deeply alarmist believes in the absolute centrality of the party as the guiding force for China's, uh, not just its past, but its future. Um, and certainly his ambitions for the country are clearly outlined in the range of speeches he's delivered since uh, 2013, uh, the double anniversary, uh, that is, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party in 2021, uh, the um, double centenary, uh, of 2049 for the founding of the People's Republic. Um, these are um, respectively designed as signposts on the road towards China becoming a global great power mm. uh, with an affluent society with developed living standards, mm. developed country living standards yeah. at home, but also a country which is um, in a central role mm -hmm. in the future evolution of the global order. But beyond those headlines, it's hard to be specific. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm seeking to prove. Yeah. And um, so current international relations scholarship um, posits that there are sort of these traps facing China at the moment, including the middle income trap um, and the two cities trap. Are these, 
like do these concepts have a con like a basis in reality or are they just terms that um, Western scholars are throwing out um, in the wake of China's rise in the world economy? Uh, well, their verity lies the veritable uh, dilemma of uh, all Western scholarship as it relates more broadly to, quote, the East, unquote, um, and certainly as it relates to a 5,000-year-old civilization like China, which somewhat predates the birth of the Western Academy. So, therefore, we've got a whole series of Western theoretical constructs about what's the real nature of the world, realism, liberalism, neorealism, neoliberalism, constructivism, uh, the English school, post-structuralism, post-modernism, and then um, what I would describe as staring down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, In the the influence of people like Derrida and Foucault. Mm -hmm. And then you have an indigenous Chinese tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, which when you strip it away, uh, use none of those terms. Uh, uh, but if you go to the heart of the Confucian legalist tradition, which is uh, dominant in China from about 500 to 200 BC, and then translates itself into the Confucian orthodoxy of the later country, uh, we would describe that as a capital R realist tradition. But in this broader civilization, tempered by other forms of um, Buddhism and Taoism, um, and certain conditionalities in the treatment of people, but always within a hierarchical Confucian framework. So, uh, that's a long-winded way of saying uh, that yes, there are common resonances, uh, but uh, there are also plainly Chinese conceptualizations of their behaviors at home and abroad, which don't neatly fit within our taxonomies. And you described the urgency of this China question um, when you first started studying Sinology 40 years ago. Is this question... God, that makes me feel old. How old are you, Verity? 19. So, did everyone hear that? She's half the age of my study of China. So. That means you're, you've got a wealth of knowledge. Um, that means I've got a lot of grey hair, my um, Is this China question more or less urgent now? Oh, infinitely more urgent. I think in many respects I was at the, um, I started studying China in 1976, the year that Mao died, the year the Cultural Revolution ended, the year Zhou Enlai died, and uh, the year the Gang of Four, that is the hardline extremists who ran the Cultural Revolution, were purged. If you like, that was the birth of the current period. Mm -hmm. Um, Deng was rehabilitated two years later, Mm -hmm. the first reforms of the economy systemically were unrolled in the period between you know, 78 and, um, and, uh, and 83, 84, um, and, um, and we've seen the rest since then. So I saw it as emerging importance now, but it's no longer an emerging question, it's a real and current question, it's a real and current challenge. But in the tradition of the academy, our responsibility is first to understand what the eve is. Um, Secondly, having understood what the it is, that is, the rise of China and its manifestation, not just in Asia but across the world, um, but also um, what's its own internal ideation of that, how do they think about that, how do they explain that, and how do they predict that. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, understanding causalities, which is what's driving that. Yeah. Now, these are now, I think, urgent 
questions mm -hmm. for the academy, but frankly, infinitely more urgent for policymakers. Mm -hmm. And so, given I have more experience as a policymaker yeah. than I have uh, as an academic, um, I'm um, I'm trying to combine two worlds uh, mm -hmm. into one, but hopefully write something which is disciplined in a scholarly sense, but relevant to policymakers as well. And for Australian academics and policymakers, China has an even greater urgency because economically, culturally, um, geographically, we're much closer. As you say in your book, the Far East is our near north. Will Australia have to make a choice at some point in the future between its economic ties with China and its political cultural ties with the West, or is this a false dichotomy? How, what, will our, what will Australia's future relationship look like with China? I've never accepted the dichotomy thesis, because there is inherently no logical reason to do so, other than, um, shall I say, a predisposition for uh, intellectual elegance, mm -hmm. if either this or that. Uh, and to sum up the great Australian school of international relations theory, we do walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and, uh, and I think, therefore, there is a deep and profound economic engagement with China, which we're all familiar with. It represents 30% of Australian exports. Um, but, for example, uh, China is much less significant to us than um, Europe is to, to Britain, economically. Um, we should bear that in mind. But given who we are, and uh, we are a Western country um, by nature of our uh, democratic institutions, our philosophical bearings, um, our, the role of Judeo-Christianity, both uh, historically and currently, mm -hmm. uh, the place of the enlightenment disciplines of reason and the enlightenment, universal suffrage, uh, uh, democratic uh, forms of governments, independent uh, legal systems, a certain universality to human rights. That is also us. Mm. And so, whereas this may be inconsistent with China's domestic worldview, so what? Mm. I mean, we're just different. Yep. And we should have sufficient confidence in ourselves uh, to continue to articulate that difference. Certainly when I was in government, I did mm -hmm. that all the time. Respectful of China, it's different. But frankly, uh, quite proudly assertive of who we are mm -hmm. and where we have different views. That is not a piece of uh, impossible politics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be besties mm. uh, with those yeah. in Beijing on everything. Mm -hmm. But frankly, they'd become contemptuous of us if we were. Mm -hmm. And for listeners interested in politics or foreign policy, um, what advice or tips would you have for them in terms of um, studying it from an academic point of view or in terms of policy making or government? You'd expect me to say this, but because I'm from a policy background, I would strongly argue. Uh, for those uh, interested in the world to view it increasingly uh, through the parameters of policy need, mm -hmm. but frankly, um, because of the rapidity of change in the external mm -hmm. environment, uh, policy challenge, even policy crisis. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the time for all good women and men of uh, good will and good mind. Mm -hmm and good heart to sort of throw their shoulders to yeah. the wheel here. Um, to understand clearly uh, the nature of change in the international order driven by a rising China or a retreating America mm -hmm. and, uh, and a Russian Federation doing its own thing. Yeah. 
the Europe engaged in a rolling seminar about itself, um, and uh, as it completes its next decade of introspection, um, and frankly, irrelevance beyond Europe uh, as a geopolitical entity. Um, Africa legitimately self-preoccupied with its own development, its own peace and security, Latin America to some extent the same. And so these are profound changes together with those of climate, together with those of demography and economic development, uh, together with the challenge to, let's call it, liberal democracy. So uh, whereas I'd normally say in any comfortable season, yeah, uh, just... Um, research that which lights up your lights uh, with no particular end in mind. Uh, I would say to those who are sharp, I, I think um, your collective countries need you at this time. And so, and therefore, wrap your minds around um, the language, history and culture of China. Wrap your mind around uh, the future of China in the region and the world. Wrap your mind around the future trajectories of Europe, um, so that um, it can be wrenched out of its, um, you know, its postmodernist moment of thinking that the future of Europe hangs entirely on getting its uh, gender politics or politics of sexuality right. There's a few other things going on out there. And what are three books that have influenced your thinking? Not necessarily favourites, but have changed the way you view the world. Um, and that you'd recommend to listeners, please? I don't think anyone from the West uh, can um, navigate their own civilization with at least having a strong familiarity with uh, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Just because when you read it, um, you will, um, whether you are theologically minded or not, it actually informs so many of the underpinning assumptions alive in um, ethical and legal conclusions mm -hmm. in the collective West. So I think that's one. Um, I think um, as, uh, in terms of an understanding of China, uh, I would, uh, uh, no, before I come to China, uh, in terms of um, understanding the rest of the Western canon, I think uh, seriously wrap your head around Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, not just because the language is beautiful, but because it too captures um, um, uh, ways of thinking mm -hmm. about yeah. individuals in the state, albeit from the bloodiness of the Tudor period, which uh, frankly is not a bad guide to contemporary authoritarian mm -hmm. politics yeah. as well. True. Um, or frankly, politics, period. Yeah. Uh, as those of us who have been on the receiving end of the rusty bayonet from time to time uh, can, uh, can attest. I think in terms of broadening the reading, I would um, recommend two further pieces of literature, and I know that's four, not three. One's um, obviously Dostoevsky's uh, brother's uh, Karamazov, uh, because of its, its study of continuity and change in Russia. Um, and then there's a history of China by uh, Jonathan Spence, which I think is one of the better histories of China. And one final question. Um, the other great Labour leader, Bob Hawke, also studied at Oxford, um, and he holds a record for the Yard of Ale at the Turf Tavern. During your time here, um, are you likely to contest that record, perhaps on Australia Day 2018? 
you know something? I visited uh, said pub over the weekend for the first time. Uh, what's the pub called again? The Turf Tavern. The Turf Tavern. And, uh, and already a bunch of Australian students have invited me there for this challenge. But it's my melancholy duty to report that the yard blast has been abolished. And for occupational health and safety reasons, I presume. I wouldn't have wanted to show up hawky anyway. <laughs> but no, I'll go down there for a tipple, but um, I don't think anyone has the capacity of RJ Hawk in terms of uh, downing a glass. Yeah. And, uh, and as I'd say, long may he reign. Kevin Rudd, thank you very much. Um, pleasure interviewing you. Um, and to listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Um, and please keep following The Beacon to listen to more in future. Thank you, Verdi.